You're listening to A Drive-Along Story by Christine Genier, created for Nakai Theater's 2021 Pivot Festival. Some of the guiding directions are spoken quickly, and it is recommended that you have a printed map of this drive-along's route on hand while you're driving, and that you have a general sense of the route before you begin. Be safe and enjoy. Hey, Danit A. Show, how are you? You doing good? Thanks for meeting me here. This is great. We find ourselves sitting, hopefully, at a pull-off next to a couple of boarded-up structures and uh, this Canada Post station here for mail pickup. This is what is known as the Car Cross Corner. Look across, uh, look over there, look across the highway there. Do you see Sally's salvage? Good. Good, you're in the right place. Uh, This is where our road trip starts today. This is uh, kilometer 1361.4, or if you prefer, if you're old school, mile 866. The highway starts, uh, as you know, or may know, in um, Dawson Creek, British Columbia, and that's mile zero. You'll see that mile post there. It's a big deal around there as well. Well, the highway starts in, in 1942. Uh, that's when it was, I guess, maybe the first time they, they used the word completed. I don't know that we would even call it complete today. It um, has a complicated history for me personally. It has brought change to my line that was already here, and it brought to me my other line. I'll talk a little bit about that coming up. The, uh, the highway itself was built uh, to connect Alaska to the rest of the United States through Canada um, during the Second World War and completely changed the Yukon and uh, the people who lived here forever, uh, changed the face of it. Now, if you live in the Yukon and you weren't born here, chances are you came in through this highway, either coming in from the south through BC or landed at the airport, which is, you know, situated here on the highway. Now, uh, my mom's line has been here longer than the highway, longer than the cities with Anglo names, longer than you can know. That's not the story, though, I'm telling today. My dad, (laughs) my dad came here on the highway linking my origin story to that stretch of asphalt uh, pavement and yeah many places even now still gravel dad moved uh, to the Yukon back in 1971 came up here on the highway he wasn't going to stay that wasn't the plan and how many times have you heard that (laughs) I wasn't gonna stay I went up to visit. I was on my way through to Alaska. I uh, I was just driving through. So many, so many folks who fell in love in a heartbeat with the North. So Dad was on his way through to Alaska and stopped here. He did uh, meet my mom 
two worlds met each other to create this half-breed story. He would stay for almost 25 years before he found his exit on this same highway going south. Growing up uh, in Whitehorse, I didn't spend my youth cruising around the streets of downtown. You know, when you're this far from the downtown core, man, you have got to plan your visits to town carefully. And, uh, and when you're a kid with no driver's license, you are at the mercy of adults. So chances are you had to plan things. You had to, you had to get creative. It, if you wanted to stay in town, you had to stay at your friend's house and sleep over after school. So you go to the principal's office, you ask to use the phone because we're talking about the early 80s here. Cell phones weren't even anything more than, uh, you know, anything we saw in James Bond or Star Trek. The first subdivision south of Whitehorse opened uh, to bids in 1978 and was called Wolf Creek Subdivision. Our lot was the second one purchased and uh, with a road cut in, that was it. No driveways, no power lines, no sewage systems, no wells, nothing. That smell, you know that smell? The chainsaw gas, that mixture of oil and gasoline, fresh cut trees always brings me right back to those days. And mom had us set up in a wall tent uh, for that first summer on the property and we were clearing the lot there were mom, dad, three kids, two dogs, a cat. I don't know how they did it. They did, though. Man, but yeah. So by the time I uh, started taking the school bus in 1980, aging myself here, I'm okay with that. The roads were in. Several families had set up houses. Now, yeah, this road trip, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, where, I, where I spent most of my time on this road. We did family road trips. Uh, every weekend and and sometimes during the week and definitely in the summers it was a daily thing. So part of this was we had a daily road trip as well and I'm going to inter- interject and tell you about this. We have all of us, right, those memories that form us and, and we think about school and how it shaped us, either uh, the education rece- we received uh, the teachers we had, uh, mostly though, uh, through through the other kids, right, our our peers, and how we related to them, or maybe how they related to us, our social groups. That's what formed us before we even knew what we wanted to be when we grew up. School culture informs us, but there is, believe me, a world separate from this culture somehow completely different, yet made up of so many of the same components as school culture with with one noticeable difference. It's on wheels with one adult, one person in charge of a gang of kids with no seatbelts, and, and these adults had to pay attention to the road in front of them. So there was this whole world going on every morning and every afternoon and its own little culture. And I'm talking about the school bus. And if you took the school bus for any length of time, maybe right now you're nodding along. You know what I'm talking about. And all of this ended up more like 
like short episodes of, of Lord of the Flies broken down into into one hour segments that it took to pick up all of the kids along the highway and get them to the schools in town. Now, everyone knew it, and it, and if you didn't know, you'd find out pretty quickly that those uh, those back rows were for the big kids, and the big kids were always so scary, and they they were big and towering, so they were scary in their general size and their abject coolness. Yeah, yeah, that's it. They were just cool, you know, and and when. When you are six years old, the big kids are automatically cool. So the bus would, uh, it would do its, the first pickup was at the cutoff where we just took off from, right? The, uh, the car cross cutoff was, was, well, yeah, it's a parking area for the postal pickup now. Man, it used to be the hub of the community south of town. Uh, greasy burgers, home fries, off sales. And uh, for so many of us coming of age at this end of town, the first job was with serving or dishwashing there. It changed hands a couple of times before it shuttered uh, permanently somewhere in the late 90s. There is another restaurant opening now on that side of town. The Wolf's Den is out there. I wonder, will they... Will they become that same hub? So to get to school for the 8.40 start time meant that you were uh, you're on the bus by 7.30. And to get to that bus stop meant that you had to walk down a very long driveway into the road. And I'm not joking. This is, this is my uphill to school both ways uh, in 10 feet of snow because it did feel like that. But no streetlights at all. This is, okay, this is fine most of the time, right? You got moonlight, you've got uh, certain times of the year when the daylight accompanies you, but uh, those mornings, it was pitch black. You could not see your hand in front of your face. So my sisters and I would, uh, you know, we'd sometimes have a flashlight, but as kids do, we would lose it more often than not, and most times uh, we would not have one. Those are the kinds of things you just don't think about it when you're a kid, right? You get to school, realize you you left your lunch on the bus, put the flashlight down somewhere. It would, uh, you know, uh, just dissipate into thin air. That's scientifically backed information, by the way. It does happen. Molecules separating and one can only imagine reforming in a slightly different universe. That is just how it works with kids and the objects in their care. However, it also meant more often than not, it, it was me and my sisters hollering back and forth in a world where we we couldn't see anything in front of us in some form of Yukon rural echolocation communication strategy. This uh, didn't last long, really, Um, you know, as more families began settling in. I remember that first streetlight going in and uh, feeling like Maybe I was going to miss the darkness a bit. We'd gotten to know each other. Uh, me in the darkness in my wizened years of six six years old. <laughs> and uh, we got, we, we did. Getting through it gave my little girl self a sense of survival. But, well... 
did that light ever open up the world? We would try to get to the bus stop a bit early in the winter because we knew that if we bugged her enough, uh, my older sister would have us grab onto one end of our winter scarves. And uh, as we, we squatted down onto the slick road ice, and she would grab the other end, and she would uh, pull us up and down the road like that uh, to kill time until our chariot arrived. Uh, may we, may we all have an older sister as patient and and willing as that. My my memories of the school bus always take place in the winter. I I don't know why, but it it school bus winter. Those uh those windows that you you know the, the aluminum framed uh, windows that you opened by pressing these little buttons on the side. No, not quite pressing as such, but like sticking your fingers in and, and pushing inwards and then trying to pull the window down. Damn, that was hell on the fingers of a little, a little kid. Those windows are always, always iced over in my memory. They would they would open and uh, get stuck open, and you just kind of resigned yourself to bracing against the northern wind blowing into your face for the rest of the ride. That uh, big orange bus, that was our world until we became old enough to to drive this highway on our own. And if you didn't have a car, well, to stick out your thumb and and hope for the best. That was still quite common back in the day. You don't you don't see it much these days, though, do you? I mean, yeah, with uh, with with social distancing these days, there are so many considerations when you see a traveler at the side of the road now. But yeah, back then it was the way to get around, no matter your age, creed, race. Yeah, if you didn't have your own ride, you stuck out your thumb. McRae, McRae, the community of McRae was on the route. Uh, and and we're about there now. We would we would pull in past Joe Wren's gas station. You can still see Joe Wren's name up there on the Petro Canada station, uh, Petro Canada sign up there. Uh, we'd pull in past that, past the Chinese food restaurant that I imagine was was once owned by someone named George. Because even though I'd never met him or anyone named George in that in that in that restaurant on. Those Friday nights that were reserved for, for family dinners out, mom and dad would never say, let's go to the Chinese food restaurant or even let's go to McRae's. It was always, who wants to go to George's? A couple of years ago, the whole shebang was just raised to the ground and nothing stands there now. It was one of those buildings in Whitehorse I could have sworn would live forever. I can close my eyes and see the the swinging doors and the small foyer where the cash register was. Turn left for Chinese food with the family. Turn right for beer and a pool table. And as we pull out now back onto the highway after visiting with McRae for a second... I, uh, you know, we're coming up to Mount Sima, right? Have you been there? Beautiful. Every, every part, every part of this land is beautiful. Yeah, but, uh, Mount Sima, what a name. I, 
I know that there's a connection there to the language of the land, Southern Dashoni, Dakwinjay, um, and and I want to talk about it a little bit. But you know what? I'm not even I'm not the person. I'm not the person with this uh, this knowledge now yet. But I'll tell you what. Let's call mum. Mum knows. <laughs> when I get stuck on the language or the history, I give my mum a call. You're driving, so I'll dial. And uh, we'll see if mum's up for a phone call. Eshma, Danny Day, show? Ah, show, show, Good, good, good. I'm, I'm taking a cruise with uh, some friends of mine here, and we're just passing Mount Sima. You know the ski hill? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I just wanted to tell them a little bit about the name of it, but I am not, uh, I, do, I wanted to go to the source. You're the source. Oh, I wanted sure. to say, you know, Mount Sima, and I think some people say, yeah, that's a, that's an indigenous word. But then I thought, mm, kind of sounds like maybe it was, it was, it was made from an indigenous word. I wanted to, uh, to ask you because I know, I know you know the language. I'm still grabbing it myself, big time. Uh, okay. So I'm going to say, you know, what about this name, Yeka? Why? Why did they call it that? Do you know? Um. You know, all of the names that we're familiar with in the Yukon and elsewhere in Canada, wherever there's Indigenous people anywhere in the world, we all have names for the places that we are Indigenous to, the lands, the waters, everything. And that holds true for this area as well, the Yukon. Um we are our names are made oftentimes uh to signify the importance of a landmark or the environment or the resources that come from the environment whether they're non-renewable resources like minerals or um renewable resources such as animals, fish, anything that actually uh, contributes to our livelihood and lifestyle. Ah. And because until the last 50 years we didn't have a written language, um, often the knowledge was passed on through oral history, uh, through place names, uh, the use of the land, the people that live in the land and occupy the land. And SEMA is a good example of um, non-Aboriginals not quite understanding what it means and uh, why a particular landmark would be named that. So when the ski hill was created, uh, there was... Uh, some thought to naming it and uh, a nomination was made for CMA. And that's actually how it's spelt in English today, CMA. But actually it's two words, 
And the ski hill is not the prominent landmark within that little range of mountains. Because when you're on a ski hill and you look down, or any of that, or any of the tops of that range you look down, you can see a really beautiful gradual slope that comes up into a very prominent peak, which we today call Golden Horn. In fact, it's that peak, uh, because of its prominence uh, in the environment and also its prominence to uh, the uh, locations of the clans and the communities that it's called Tsima. The name Tsima is actually Southern Shoshone. And Tsi is the word we use to describe a rock or a stone. It's crumbly, and you see it in different places in the environment, actually, uh, throughout the Yukon. It's either an orange, yellow, leaning towards rust and a deep red. And we call that stone E. C. Yes. And that stone is viewed as um, a spiritual medicine as opposed to a medicine that you would take from the land and uh, ingest or smudge or smoke to deal with a physical illness. This is a spiritual one. It's, uh, anyways, that's, uh, that's a stone that people bring and crumble, and then they treat it with uh, resin, pitch, from, uh, you know, the coniferous trees, uh-huh. <clears throat> spruce trees, Mostly spruce trees and subalpine fir. Subalpine fir grows in the area, and it's more of a spiritual medicine as well. Um, spruce is a physical medicine. But anyways, they combine that, and then they use it as a paint. And that's the red ochre that you see uh, on moccasins that have been um, kept in museums. There's red paint on moccasins. There's red paint on snowshoes. There's red paint on drums. And there's red paints and symbols drawn onto clothing. And that's where that E is used. That combined with the word ma, because ma is mother. So it's e ma used in that regard to find uh, good um, sources of that e is, uh, is, is translated to mean the mother of e. So it's like a source 
for where you can find that. <clears throat> every valley, everything has has uh, knowledge to, inside those names, and if you speak the language, you have that knowledge. So that's where that comes from. That name, Tsima. And in fact, it's Golden Horn, as, as people know Golden Horn today. Okay. Now, when you look at the water that begins to come from the snow melt from Golden Horn, it pools in a little tiny lake at the foot of Golden Horn called Mary Lake. People know the subdivision and the little lake there. That it's, Sometimes it's a little bit bigger, sometimes it's a little smaller, depending on the snowpack. That carried the name Tsi-Man. Uh, there are other lakes and other communities in the Yukon, other First Nation communities that carry it, that name because it has similar properties. It's close to where Tsi it can be found or sourced. Um, and that little lake, uh, Mary Lake or Tsi-Man, then creates a little uh, water release, which is called Wolf Creek. And then you pass over that Hagi on Chu. your drive. Uh -huh. that, that Wolf Creek is Tsi-Chua. Tsi-Chua. Yeah. So it still carries a name and it still follows and then it empties into uh, um, Chu the Yukon River. So when you speak the language and you follow those uh, markers, those land markers, you can follow to find what you're looking for by just understanding the language. This is really, uh, this is good knowledge to have. Thank you. Uh, I'm really glad you were home on our cruise here today. Oh, yes. um, thank you for sharing that with us, Mom. Well, I'm glad you asked because, you know, there is so much history that we don't know about unless we are Indigenous. And it's, uh, it's a loss if we don't try to look for that because there's so much knowledge and it's, uh, it's amazing what we can learn from, from, uh, from people who use these resources before us. And E, by the way, is not just a spiritual medicine for Southern Shoshone people, which sort of make up the bulk of the population here in this area. But I know that the the Gwich'in, the Vantai Gwich'in, when they began to document their uh, their bush medicines, they identified Tsi as a very influential medicine as well. Almost every indigenous person uses that. You know, I mean, you find cave drawings that are painted by Tsi. That just lasts forever. Lots of knowledge here. I'm glad you, I'm glad you asked me this because I love to share this. I learned this certainly from, you know, from my mom, my dad, 
you know, my siblings, my older siblings, they pass that along to me, and uh, I'm glad to pass it on to you now. Thank you. Shroni Than Mum Sokisani Denit A. Take care. We're going to just keep cruising. I want to take them down the highway here a bit. All right, you guys. Stay safe on the road. Okay. Wow. Well, there you there you go. That was uh well, if you don't you must know my mom. <laughs> Maybe you don't. It depends on how long you've lived here. Uh her name is Jura. You might know her by her English name, Shirley Adamson. There were uh, a couple of stops left on the highway between here and uh heading into town, and uh when you turned left at Canyon Crescent, well, you knew you were halfway there. That meant that uh, you had about uh, 20 minutes or so to finish the homework you lied about not having the night before. <laughs> Damn, I would always get feedback from my teachers about my horrible penmanship. And uh, while I never had the clearest handwriting, that was, uh, that was basically the result of writing while in a moving vehicle. Our last stop on the highway on the school bus before turning right onto what was then known as the South Access and is now known as Robert Service Way was to the Lowbird Trailer Park. To get to Lowbird now, you you head up left through the beautiful new access you see uh, now that continues on to, to Granger and Copper Ridge subdivisions. Uh, but before that access road opened, uh, what feels, well, it feels like that happened only a few short years ago. Before that opened, you got to Lowbird through a lane called Squatters Row, which uh, sounds about as, as Yukon as you can get in some ways. Uh, come that uh, first deep snowfall, that steep winding dirt road turned itself into a different kind of hell for the poor soul charged with our care on that ride without fail that behemoth would would stick in the the f- almost frozen mud snow mixture that happens time ticking ticking past as you knew you knew the teachers never seemed to care whether or not your tardiness was within your control few uh, tire spins later and the bigger boys you know those ones who ruled over the back two rows of the bus well they would all get out to push they did and eventually we would get out and on to our destination I am hard pressed to imagine such a thing just being allowed today maybe maybe it is I, I don't know I no longer have a connection to the school bus culture but that in my memory The 80s really were a wild time. Every day, five days a week, 10 months out of the year, you got on that school bus going into town, you you turned right on the south axis, and you shifted into the school world. And it was a big part of my memories of this highway. It's uh, it's just a small detour, though, because I'm going to take you uh, the rest of the way on a on a family road trip that would have started in Wolf Creek and ended up anywhere really maybe it was out by Carmax where dad was um you know doing some bush clearing out there maybe it was out to uh Kluxu, uh on uh, staying on this highway but it always uh, started out 
in in Wolf Creek for us. And uh, that meant, too, that you didn't turn into town. This was a road trip, so you stay on the highway and you go straight past that intersection. And we would be traveling in the, the family car, usually because, again, it was the 80s, some big boat of a vessel that was, in fact, born in the 70s. One of those boats was a 1975 Lincoln Town car that my dad had picked up one day. It had space inside and out. And when I was 13 years old, I would begin the first of my driving lessons in that car. Those who know me now, well, you know I'm tall, tall, tall-ish. I'm tall-ish. I, I have to tell you at this time, though, I was a late bloomer. That growth spurt did not happen until, well, until after this happened. So you have to picture a Yukon kid, no taller than than four foot five, maybe if I'm being generous, struggling to crane my neck so that I, I might see anything over the steering wheel, only to find that my field of vision was uh, completely overwhelmed by a giant sea of blue metal that was the hood of that car. But for a road trip on this highway, yeah, you, you could not find a better tank. There were no bucket seats and there was no enforcement of seat belts. That would come later. Just one long bench seat in the back with lap belts if you if you chose to dig in between the vinyl and pull them out. And uh, the borderlines between siblings monitored with a militaristic fervor. <laughs> you know how it goes. If you were in the back seat with a sibling, you know what I am talking about. Uh, but as you know, road trips, uh, they're not just about the car. It's about the highway. And it's about the music, and it's about the food, it's about the company. At this point, I, I, I search my memory banks. I try to remember when the landscape changed at the top of the Two Mile Hill. When, when did the town open up into the McIntyre, Granger, Logan, and Copper Ridge subdivisions? I actually don't remember. Do you? Do you? I just remember it one way, and then I remember it another way. Like watching a child grow, this highway grew, its limbs expanded, and the city grew around it, and it just happened. This part of the highway got fun, though, now, didn't it? Where we're Around where we're at right now, can, can we even see the lanes under the snow? We do have separate lanes around here. As we head into the Hillcrest area, uh, now, i, I got to take a minute to preach here, but don't worry, it will pass. Here it is. Slow the F down. There are families here. Okay, done. And I know you're doing the speed limit now. We're heading, about, we're about headed past the, the airport now, and, and you'll see it coming up if we haven't passed it yet. You'll see it. You can't, you can't miss it. It's, it's, a, it's a big weather vane. Yeah, it's kind of famous. It's, it's, it's a freaking airplane. All right. It's an airplane. They got an airplane for a, for a weather vane. So this airplane that you see here, it it hasn't always been propped up like that on a pedestal. It ha it wasn't. Not at the beginning of my memory of it. For the longest time it sat on the ground, uh just uh yeah, perfectly accessible to any family that wanted to, I don't know, go exploring. <laughs> There were also security guards, people in charge of that. 
uh, in a one time in a, just this is maybe the way we were uh, in in some of my earlier memories, uh, having done that exploring, uh, because that's the way um, my mom has always been as well. Just explore, adventure, and uh, apologize after. But there were security guards, and now it's on a pedestal. I'm not saying we did that. I'm just saying it's probably good that it's on a pedestal. We're past that uh, last intersection now, up at the uh, the two-mile hill, the top of the two-mile hill. Take a stop at the Copper King convenience store for those road snacks. It, it, was, it was always the good stuff, right? No health requirements when you're not at the dinner table. This was all about the fun of food and cheap food, convenience store food, road trip food, pepperoni sticks, old Dutch barbecue potato chips, and two liter bottles of Coca-Cola to be shared around. So be careful of backwash. You're sharing that bottle. Maybe you have two quarters in your pocket. That's big money for a kid in the early 80s on a Yukon highway. <laughs> you, grab a, you grab a little tiny paper bag and fill it with the blue whales, gummy worms, sweet and sours, hot lips, all for a penny each. You have your snacks, maybe put a little gas in the car. You know, uh, years after growing up on the highway south of the city, I would move here to this trailer park on the highway where on Thursday nights you could hear the bass coming from the bar on Buckabeer nights. Yeah. yeah. Back in the car. Pile into the back of that old Lincoln town car with three kids in the back seat mapping out their, their borders and their boundaries. With <laughs> Mom! Mom! She's touching my side. She keeps putting her hand on my side of the seat. Mom! And you've got all yours. Sorry about that. But sorry, Mom. With all of the snacks bought and distributed, we would head out again northwest on the highway. So you got your snacks. You got the big car. You got the company. What more do you need? The playlist. The playlist. An important feature of any highway drive. The playlist. There were no iPods. There were no never-ending playlists, random selections, guilty pleasures popping up that you'd have to explain to your friends. If you were listening to any music, it was intentional music and limited, so it better be music you enjoyed. This, this was before CDs, so you, you couldn't even mix a CD. But, Christine, I hear you asking, I hear you asking it. What about the mixtape? Was that not a staple of the 80s? We hear about it enough on listicles and nostalgia articles online. Yeah, kids, but if only we had a cassette player in that that land yacht. What we did have and what would deliver our music to us, what, what we had was called an 8-track player. Giant cartridges that you popped in and listened to until you shut it off with tracks changing right in the middle of the song. And you just went with it. 
Those eight tracks were uh, such a staple of our travels on this highway. I can still picture each and every one of them. The Nazareth album, Leonard Cohen, Lacey J. Dalton, Roy Orbison, Johnny Cash. The labels wrinkled and cracking, halfway peeled off and stained. And we knew all the words, especially to that Johnny Cash. And even and even when we didn't know the words, we would vocalize to the sounds. And Lord, if I don't know how my parents put up with it, I I never remember that getting on their nerves. There are three access points into uh, downtown from the highway, and right about here now we've passed that last one. If you are still going, it's because well you are still going and when we uh, would pass that last access point well that meant that you were cruising for the day as a kid I always remember being okay with this I was never bored looking at the trees whipping by or maybe my younger sister and I would make a game of what we saw outside the window I don't know if you remember, but the road lights were a different shape and color than than what you see now. And there was a transition period where you would see both kinds on an extended drive. And what we would do is we would stare up the lights, our, our foreheads and cheeks just press, pressed on that glass. And the glass, the glass that smelt like something in and of itself. Hot dog. Hot dog. We would call out um, identifying the long light bulbs that threw a dark amber light. Hamburger! When, when we spotted the new round lights that we see now, throwing the white light onto the asphalt ahead of you. Yeah, we, we were a creative bunch. We did what we could with what we had. There were no, there were no video games to get home to, see? No handheld devices to bide your time with. Unless you remembered the small uh, small electronic baseball game that never seemed to have any batteries in it. And the songs. Not the playlist. The songs. My highway songs, it may surprise you to, to learn, are French. My dad was my favorite singer. His deep tenor voice singing the old French folk songs still echoes in my child heart. I can still be with him through these songs, and I, I can still hear myself ask him in my child voice, sing a song, Dad. It, it usually wouldn't take much prodding, and, and Dad would start singing. Ma revenant de la jolie Rochelle Ma revenant de la jolie Rochelle J'ai rencontré trois jolies demoiselles. C'est l'aviron qui nous mène, qui nous mène. C'est l'aviron qui nous mène en haut. They were always love songs. And Dad would sing them in a way that I didn't even realize was not accompanied by any music. It always just felt like it was. Oh, près de ma blonde, il fait bon, fait bon, fait bon. And I would ask him to sing another one. And I would ask him to sing another one. And finally, he would tell me, I have a frog in my throat. I can't sing anymore. I have a frog in my throat. Of course, in my little kid head, right, I, I, I could picture 
always this little cartoon frog, probably that dude from the WB <laughs> setting up shop in my dad's throat. He came here running, and he left here running. This highway holds all the stories of the runaways coming and going. The territory itself is, is made up of so many runaway stories. Some ran and found themselves here. Some ran from here to find themselves out there. Dad was running from his French accent and French last name, and well, the poor guy never saw me coming. A girl blood born to the love of culture and language and with an inherent understanding of the abject importance of both. He ran from that name, changed it to Janeer. A good Anglo-Canadian sound to it. And uh, softened his French accent, or maybe just living here softened it. And in my teenage rebellion, when I came home one day and asked him why my teachers pronounce my name Genier, he told me, well, it's probably because that's how it's pronounced and that he chose to change it. I chose to change it back. Genier. Genier. Just has such a lyrical quality. When I always thought in all my years up to that point that Genier just landed with a thud. My poor, my poor dad, running when a daughter wouldn't let him. Your children will do that. They want to know who they are. I love that name. The highway brought me that name. You're just about at the rest stop now where you will choose to turn off onto the Mayo Road or keep going through, uh, through Tequina, Chazelle. Haynes Junction, all the way through to Alaska, through uh, Tanquichan Territory, through Kwanlin Dun Territory, through Champagne and Ajak Territory, uh, through Kwani First Nation Territory, through White River First Nation Territory, all the way through to Alaska. Yeah, then hence the, the name, the Alaska Highway. It is beautiful out there. We are not too far off from the St. Elias Mountain Range, Kluwani Country, a site that will grab your heart and squeeze it tight every single time. There's good Christmas tree hunting around that area as well. Uh, heads up, you, you only ever see the really good ones in June, uh, July. Completely forget where they were come December. And, you know, be careful. Always. If you keep going... And and you will, maybe not this trip, but, but the Yukon, it's out there, down that road, down the mail road, and you want to see it. Watch for the bison and the elk. Watch for your fellow travelers on the highway. It's the Yukon way. The Alaska Highway is 2,232 kilometers in length, 1,000 387 miles. Mile zero is in Dawson Creek, British Columbia, and wraps up in Delta Junction in Alaska. You know, when it was completed back in 42, it was it was longer. It was uh, probably about 400-ish uh, kilometers uh, longer, just under maybe just over 1,500 miles longer. But um, 
yeah, due to the fact that they keep working on it and shortening the twists and turns, it's a little bit shorter now. And this run we just did, well, that's just a small slice of it. But it is so huge in our lives. It came to us courtesy of the United States Armed Forces and greatly impacted the folks who were already here. Colonially and collectively known as Yukon First Nations. <laughs> My matrilineal line, baby. Like an asteroid, bam! And completely shifted our trajectory. There's a lot to unpack there. And that's happening now. And, and it has to happen now. A complicated history. It has brought pain and it, it has brought opportunity. My grandfather worked on this highway. The lives lived on this highway and the lives lost to this highway have created so many of our stories rippling out just like every other Yukon character. <laughs> Isn't that what this highway is? A big Yukon character. When you get to uh, the rest stop up here, pull over. Have a rest. That's what it's there for. I can see that they changed things up again recently. Do you like it? Hmm. Feels a little bit more uh, big city now, you know? I mean, relative to, to what it's been. Did you know that the, the pull-off used to be on the other side of the highway? You know, nothing fancy. Not, not like this. Just a little dirt road pull-off couple of outhouses there's a um there's a term for for the in-between places those places that get you from point a to point b uh, a threshold between two realities it's called liminal space that is not what this highway is don't get lost in the transit mindset or you you miss a whole yukon character but be careful I know I said it, but I'm saying it again. It's a tricky ride in some places, and we're all counting on each other to be cool. I still live on the highway. It has grown up over the years. Subdivisions south of town grew way beyond that uh, little Wolf Creek subdivision, so much so that there's a school out that way now. Mum and I still cruise the highway. <laughs> we all We all inherited that love from her. And our snacks are a little more health-minded these days, though. Uh, yeah, stick of pepperoni. Some hot wings from the Super A might sneak in there every now and then. Back in 03, I came home on this highway, on a Greyhound bus, back from school in Toronto. On the back of a Yamaha FJR motorcycle, I fell in love with distance riding, heading out on that highway, coming home. Always coming home. This concludes Christine Genier's drive-along story. If you enjoyed this experience, be sure to try the other two drive-alongs in this series, by Local Boy and by Ivan Coyote with Sarah McDougall. Nakai Theatre and the Pivot Festival are supported by many sponsors, partners, and funders. Please visit our website, nakaitheatre.com, for a full list of all who have made this festival possible, and for more information on other Pivot events.
Thanks for listening.